KDNK listeners, this is Dan Richardson. Thank you for joining me on the Meet in the Middle show where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. Uh, the hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is guns in America, armed or dangerous. <clears throat> hope you're having a good Tuesday. We are bringing Jennifer Carlson in. Uh, via phone today. uh, Jennifer's joining us from Arizona. And until recently, my guest Jennifer Carlson was an associate professor of sociology and government and public policy at the University of Arizona and a 2022 MacArthur Fellow. She's recently joined Arizona State University as professor of sociology and where she will become the founding director of the Bridges Center, which stands for Bridges Research Bridging Research, Innovation into the Debate on Guns in Society. Jennifer's focus is the politics of guns in American life, and she's currently conducting National Science Foundation-funded research on gun violence survivors. She's the author of Citizen Protectors, Policing the Second Amendment, and Merchants of the Right. Her work has also appeared in a broad spectrum of publications, and is a contributor to, and she is a contributor to several na- national news outlets. And I found uh, Jennifer Carlson attending the Aspen Institute Ideas Festival, uh, where she was a, a panelist. So uh, uh, I found I found it very fortunate that I came across Jennifer. Jennifer, are you are you on the line? I'm here. Thank you so much for that generous introduction. All right, uh, I love it when technology works. Thank you. Um, uh, you betcha. Well, you've you've been uh, busy and hard at work at working on important issues, so um, much deserved, and, and I am very honored that you're willing to be my guest. Um, so thanks for being here and being willing to model respectful freedom of expression. Uh, I think that's critical for the success of our country, and maybe few topics um, are so hard to do that with as talking about guns. So um, it's, this is the show has been a long time coming, and I'm just, again, so grateful you're here. Um, Jennifer, guns have been an incredibly impassioned topic, as you well know, um, all throughout America, not only through my life, um, but especially so in the last decade. Um, and apparently this is true for you, too, because you've dedicated, a, would say, a significant portion of your life's work to this topic. And from my untrained observation, it's that this topic is like so many other issues in which the framing of the issue can and perhaps has uh, increased polarization and prevented constructive dialogue. And perhaps that's a huge understatement or stating what's probably painfully obvious to you and others. Um, But I thought I'd start off by just asking you, um, what what draws you to this work and what's your driver behind all your research and your efforts? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, I think with anybody who spends so much time, I've spent, uh, I think it's been now about 13 years, so a lot of of time um, digging into this issue and trying to understand it from, you know, the multifaceted perspectives that you need in order to really 
even just start to unravel what the significance of guns in the United States is. And so, you know, in terms of, um, you know, me coming into this issue, I grew up in a very conservative family. I like to say that I grew up in a conservative family, but I don't identify as conservative. I don't identify really as any particular political persuasion across (laughs) across this debate or any debate, really, um, because I think my job is actually to try and understand how we how we have the divides we have and what we can do to find places where we can compromise, places where we can look at it differently, where we can kind of shake out this, um, yeah, this this really intense partisanship that we most certainly uh, experience on this issue. And so growing up as, um, you know, in a conservative Midwestern family, um, you know, I think that many uh, teenagers like to rebel. And so I think my rebellion was sort of poking at my father's conservatism. And I should say, like, my dad was like, I mean, he was conservative in ways that, I mean, it was it was cliched. Uh, he, you know, he got his MBA from University of Chicago. He climbed the corporate ladder. He used to tell me as a, you know, when I would ask him about politics, you know, I would say, oh, tell me the difference between the Democrats and the, the Republicans. He'd say things like, you know, the Republicans are the good guys and actually it's not Democrats, it's Democrats. Um, oh, geez. So I was like, you know, already, um, I mean, in some ways it was very, um, it was a really good education in all of the things that I think we, we now are starting to take for granted in terms of our political landscape. And so in some ways, um, studying this issue was a way for me to get at sort of understanding conservative politics. But I should say that what was really interesting about my father is that gun politics were actually the one thing that he, like, kind of, like, missed the memo on. So he was a very passionate, you know, pro-capitalist uh, conservative. He, he checked all the boxes in many ways, but he wasn't actually that passionate about guns and gun politics. And so that kind of provided a way for me to sort of, I don't know, yeah, sort of explore that, the conservative politics and, and, and kind of wrestle with that, but in a way that it didn't feel so personal. Um, and then I should also say that, you know, there's also historical timing and, and, and sort of ways in which topics present themselves. And so when I was trying to figure out a dissertation topic, it was just at the moment that, you know, Obama gets elected. There's this sudden, for me, seems very shocking because I wasn't politically aware really at all with the assault weapons ban and, and the gun policies that were passed under Clinton in the early 90s. And so seeing this all sort of explode as Obama gets elected, he takes office, he's, you know, soon known as America's greatest gun salesman, at least within the industry. That's kind of a joke, but it's also true in many ways. And so I start thinking, you know, I'm a sociologist or I'm, I'm a wannabe sociologist. I'm in grad school still. And I'm thinking, surely sociologists have studied this massively important social thread in American society. And in fact, I was shocked to find that they largely hadn't. And so at that moment, I was like, this is this is what I need to study. And so sort of all these things sort of came together to make this, um, yeah, make this my topic. And so I went to Michigan, the metro Detroit area in 2010 to understand gun carry and the politics of gun carry, concealed carry, open carry, gun instruction. And I've never looked back. It's, it's an endlessly fascinating topic. Wow. Uh, that is quite interesting. So there wasn't... So it wasn't until your dissertation that the topic of guns became interesting as a student of sociology, but really you saw this vacuum uh, in the research. Uh, and that makes sense now, now that I've, I've, I've read and, and heard you a bunch. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I should say that I was interested in things like violence in society, crime, punishment, policing, and conservative politics. And so, you know, sort of all these things came together. And I think, you know, the first time I, I shot a gun for the first time in my mid-20s, so before I did this project, um, but it wasn't in the sense, I wasn't thinking of it def- most definitely as like a, a you know, a, a intellectual project. Um, so, yeah, it is. Yeah, it wasn't until really Obama sort of, yeah, entered in and then the, the reaction, the backlash, the surge in purchasing sort of really put this on not just mine, but other people's radar as well. And for the benefit of our audience, can you, I mean, there's no way to summarize um, your three books, but um, I thought that the titles were interesting and obviously they're, they're related but different. Can you give kind of an overview of the, the story of how those books came to be? Yeah, uh, although I should, <laughs> I'm going to give you a free pass to stop me whenever you want okay. because, I, you know, three books, how, how, how brief can I be? Uh, well, what I will say is that um, I, I, I can start with Citizen Protectors, and it's called Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline. And this is the book based on my dissertation work. It's the book that I wrote on concealed carriers, on open carriers, on gun instructors, focused on Michigan, particularly the metro Detroit area. And even though the NRA does, the National Rifle Association does come to play um, a part in the book, really wanted what I wanted to do was get away from this sort of knee-jerk reaction. I felt that many people, particularly outside the gun rights um, arena, would often have whenever the topic of guns comes up, right? It's, it's the NRA's fault. The NRA is paying off politicians. They're, you know, they're, they're galvanizing voters. And, you know, this is a politics of fear and anger. And, you know, that sure, there's, there's, there's ways in which that is a, an illuminating way to think about the gun debate. Um, but at the same time, it didn't explain the millions of people who were carrying guns as part of their everyday lives and related to the National Rifle Association as a firearms training outlet, right, as actually the premier national firearms training outlet in the U.S. And so, Citizen Protectors really looks at this everyday politics of guns. Why are people turning to guns? How does this make sense? How does it become meaningful? And one of the big sort of takeaways of that book is, you know, this is about a transformation in what it means. And this is, you know, using the words and the understandings. And, you know, I did interviews. I did um, participant observation, ethnography. Um, so, you know, this is really about trying to understand the perspective of people who, who own and carry guns, not forcing a perspective from the outside. And, you know, when you talk to them, you realize this is about sort of forging and shaping a, a very distinct kind of um, citizenship, a, a definition of what it means to be a good citizen that really revolves around the willingness to use defensive force if necessary, and to be the kind of person that will protect yourself, your family, um, maybe even your community. Of course, there's a big asterisk on on what community means and all of that. Um, And so what I found when I was doing this research is that, you know, there was something really interesting happening with particularly this place, Michigan. And, you know, it's, it's a Rust Belt place. It's a place that's been the epicenter of deindustrialization and this shift away from a manufacturing economy that, you know, really very much gave people, but men in particular, a sort of guidebook on, on how to be a good, productive member of society as a breadwinner, right, as a breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And that, as that sort of 
becomes dismantled, you see this shift um, from providing to protecting being really this central marker of what it means to be a good man, what it means to be a responsible member of your community, of your family. Um, And so what I found was that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, I I think there's this like stereotype of like masculinity and guns and guns are phallic symbols and all of that, which is like actually really silly (laughs) when you think about it. But yet it's oftentimes that that's there as part of a yeah, a conversation. And, you know, I really push back on that in the book because I'm like, you know, if you want to understand, um, if you want to understand how masculinity and gender works in the, in terms of guns, you really have to understand this deep sense of loss that has come out of deindustrialization and sort of what that means in terms of not, you know, and, and that's not to say that, you know, power and, and, and all of these things and authority aren't wrapped up in guns, but so is a desire to be a useful, productive, responsible person. And so guns, you know, unlike a job, unlike, um, you know, economic, you know, an economy that, you know, seems to sway with the whims of, you know, government policy and corporations and what have you, you know, a gun is something that you can very concretely hold in your hands. And unless gun, there's some kind of gun policy that's passed that takes that away from you, so gun confiscation, you have that, that's there, that's yours. Um, and I think that understanding it from that perspective really shifts the focus on like, you know, why why are guns so meaningful and what does gun policy actually mean to the people it impacts? Mm-hmm. And then that... So that's book one. Do you want book two? Do you want book two? Yeah, I think, I think the story <laughs> yeah. of how they evolved is important. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that came up with... Um, in my first book, Citizen Protectors, was this, um, you know, interesting divide along race in terms of how people understood themselves vis-a-vis the police. And so sort of across the board, there was this sense of, you know, I don't dial 911, I carry a gun because the cop is too heavy, when seconds matter, the police are only minutes away. So this idea that, you know, the police are not going to be there in your most dire moment of need. And some gun carriers even, you know, saw that as like, you know, the police should be happy that I'm doing this. They should see me as, you know, a fellow, uh, you know, someone who's a collaborator in, in public safety and what have you. And um, which was really, I found very interesting and raised the question of, you know, what do police think? The other flip side of that was that particularly among um, gun carriers of color, I also heard this sense of, you know, police as being profilers, police as being harassers, police, you know, asking them, you know, I I know where your guns are, where are your drugs, Um, you know, very much kind of engaging with what we we are very well aware of with respect to, um, you know, the, the policing of race in, in the United States. And so that also raised the question of how does race intersect with, um, you know, guns, not just in terms of why people are carrying them, but how people experience what it means to carry a gun vis-a-vis, um, vis-a-vis the state. And so if I can share a story, um, actually one of the, the stories that opens up citizen protectors is actually um, this, this gun carrier that I call Jason, all the names are pseudonyms. Um, and so Jason is an African-American man who lives in Detroit. And he basically is like, I wanted to start carrying a gun because 
I wanted to be able to exercise outside of my city and I wanted to feel safe. So, you know, this isn't someone who's like, you know, hardcore NRA gun rights. He's basically like, I want to be able to be in public space. And this is a tool that can help me feel comfortable doing that. So he does that. He eventually opts to start open carrying and, you know, and not just concealed carrying. And as he makes that shift, he realizes, oh, the police really noticed me when I'm carrying my, my pistol on my hip. And so he tells me this story of actually being at a at um, he, he's just walking around, but he happens to be near a bus stop where, you know, people are just congregating, waiting for the bus and he gets stopped by police. And so police, you know, take his gun. They throw him in the back of the the um, the police car. They kind of, you know, um, yeah, they, they're basically like, you know, what are you doing? Um, you know, and all of this. And. This is, I have a much more detailed description of this in the book, but what was really powerful to me and illuminating in terms of like, you know, what do guns actually mean? We really have to talk to the people for whom they are meaningful. So he, he gets his gun back. The police, um, you know, give him back his gun. He leaves the police car and he actually, so he's, he's recording this. Um, he actually carries a record, was carrying a recorder. And on the recording, which he shared with me, you could actually hear people clapping from the bus stop because, and this is his description, you know, here is a black man that gets stopped by the police. They're all thinking, you know, another black man going to jail for a gun and the police give me my gun back. And this, you know, this gets a round of applause, literally. And so, you know, I really wanted to understand what's the police side of this. So that's where policing the Second Amendment comes in. And it's all about how do the police who are, you know, literally on the front lines of of addressing the problem of gun crime, how do they understand gun rights? What do they think about gun carry? What do they think about all different kinds of gun policies? Um, and so that was just um, a really illuminating book for me. I interviewed police chiefs in Arizona, California, and Michigan. Um, you know, definitely came away with a, a understanding, and I'm sure this will resonate with um, the, your listeners in, in Colorado because you have a very active um, pro-gun contingent within law enforcement there. Um, a lot of people are surprised to hear that police are actually pretty pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun rights. And um, that's definitely, even in California, um, you know, and obviously the the sort of, um, you know, the metrics change because the laws are so different. So what it means to be pro-gun in one place is going to look different in another place. But even in California, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, you know, across the board gun control stance by any means whatsoever. So, um, so yeah, so that was book two. And then book three really was, um, that's Merchants of the Right, uh, in many ways returned to a lot of the um, themes of, of citizen protectors, but now it's a pandemic and there's a historic surge in purchasing by gun owners that are, you know, the quote unquote non-traditional gun owners, more women, more people of color, more sexualized minorities, um, you know, and so the book is really focused on understanding how gun sellers experienced that moment, navigated that moment, and what that means for democracy and our politics of guns. Wow, fascinating. I I love the fact that you seem incredibly curious, and I think that's so important, particularly for this issue, um, that um, for me that's inspiring. So I appreciate your curiosity and understanding the drivers behind the issues. Um, and I say issues, the title sort of implies this, this framing of the issue, um, armed or dangerous, uh, and I think this uh, – the, the play on, you know, the Second Amendment, 
but also gun violence. And, and you, I heard you mention both of them. Um, and I thought what was interesting in, in the panel at the Aspen Ideas Festival um, that I referenced earlier, one of the other guests framed in, early on in the panel, um, the guest said, I think the three, and I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of, I think the most three important questions with respect to guns are, who can own a gun? What type of gun can you have? And where can you take it? And at first I thought, okay, those are important questions. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, that's framing the gun issue from a gun rights perspective as opposed to gun violence. And I hear that – I hear both discussed, certainly here in Colorado. Um, And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on, you know, the – the common debate out there, do you do you see that dichotomy in those two issues? Are there more issues? Uh, obviously, there's more issues because you've written about them all, but mm-hmm. give me your thoughts on framing the issue. Yeah, I think that's a really, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question because if you look at the sort of history, or the, I should say like the modern history of the debate or the history of the modern debate over guns, um, it's actually been in some ways a shockingly simple debate. It's been this debate between, you know, the it, what what has been called the individualist interpretation of the Second Amendment and the collectivist or the militia interpretation of the Second Amendment. So basically, is it about individuals being able to, to having the right to own firearms, or is it um, only in connection to a militia, only in connection to some collective right? And as far as I'm concerned, you know, in 2008, we had the Heller decision, which very clearly in no, I mean, there's no ambiguity whatsoever. Um, the Second Amendment is an individual right to own a handgun. Handguns can't be banned. And I think that if you look at public opinion, that's very much in line with public opinion. Um, over three quarters or around three quarters of people in the U.S. say, I oppose a ban on handguns. I think that's super fascinating because it it is not at all clear. So the data we have, assuming people answer honestly, which is a big assumption, um, the data we have suggests that about a third of, of people in the U.S. personally own guns. So there's a huge chunk of people who are saying that they don't own guns, but are also not comfortable with the idea of banning handguns altogether. So, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, in some ways, I'd like to move on from that conversation um, because you know, there are millions and millions of guns in circulation, more guns than people. Um, we saw with the pandemic most definitely that there was, um, you know, and, and the politics are complex, but, you know, we saw that people who were never, who never thought of owning a gun before, um, who are first time gun owners were buying guns and, um, and, and that was becoming part of their, their politics. So I don't, you know, I think in terms of this question of, um, you know, can you own a gun? Who can, you know, who can own a gun? What kind? Where can they take it? Um, to sort of paraphrase your paraphrase, um, I think in some ways, like some of that's been settled. And I think that, you know, going over that same conversation, I don't think is really useful other than to keep the conversation in a, in a feedback loop that um, really doesn't do anything other than get people really angry and, um, you know, line the pockets of media that benefit from clickbait. So, 
you know, and, and I know that by saying that, I'm kind of glossing over some real legitimate questions um, regarding gun, um, you know, gun bans. So, you know, obviously there is, um, you know, about 50 percent, it, it ebbs and flows for, you know, among the American public for an assault, a ban on so-called assault weapons. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't be having that conversation, but I think that, you know, we can be having a different kind of debate because a lot of these things like that you listed in that list, in my view, um, you know, they the, the baseline of that has kind of already been established. And most certainly with Bruin, which, um, you know, that is um, the more, most recent Supreme Court uh, case that, um, you know, basically established that May issue, and I don't need to get in the weeds with all this, but, but basically more restrictive concealed pistol licensing regimes are not constitutional. Um, now, the other side of of Bruin is that it changed the um, how uh, gun laws were to be uh, evaluated with respect to their constitutionality. And so that's why we have, um, you know, a lot of people on the edge of their seats with the next Supreme Court cycle um, because of how, because because we everybody's assuming we're going to get some more insight into how that's actually supposed to be implemented. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, I think that, and, I, and, you know, I think in some ways, this is where my research, I think this is one of those moments where I, I, um, you know, I don't clearly fall on one side or the other because I do think that guns solve problems for people who own them, keep them, bear them, carry them. I think that when we, I think we saw that in the context of the pandemic, um, we saw people turning to guns as tools to address insecurity, lack of safety, um, you know, the, the threat of violence. And, you know, of course, there's a big a big, big, big debate and conversation to be had about the use of guns in defensive um, situations, how often that happens, how defensive is actually defined, is one person's defense another person's, uh, you know, criminal uh, aggression. Um, But at the end of the day, we live in a society where there are simply not the same safety nets that there are in other places that we sometimes like to compare ourselves to, like Canada or the UK or Australia. And so, you know, in that space, guns become um, one of the few tools in the toolbox at the disposal of people in the U.S. And so that's the conversation I want to have. I want to have the conversation about how guns become the go-to tool, how guns, why guns matter so much, Um, not with the objective that like, oh, if we figure it out, we can figure out how to ban guns, but because if we figure it out, we can maybe unearth policies and possibilities that can make everybody happy and make everybody feel heard and make everybody have their, in my view, legitimate, um, uh, you know, grievances, legitimate causes, legitimate um, goals with this debate actually um, actually addressed. And I, I do think that's possible, but it does require us to pull back from sort of the, the ways that we typically um, imagine gun policy. Well. Wow. That's a powerful statement um, that it applies to a lot of different issues, right? If we just stop and listen, we might understand the issue better. And maybe we won't make everybody happy, like you mentioned, but we'll find some common agreement, um, which is yeah. critical. In well, we won't, we won't make the people happy who are invested in a debate that is divisive. Like, those people are never going to be happy. But there, I, I, I feel like we can't, we, by <laughs> just as a starting premise of being fellow citizens, in this, you know, so-called democratic society, 
we have to assume that our political opponents, we have to assume enough of them that they belong in the same space for deliberation, for debate, for conversation, for collaboration. And if we don't, if we give up on that, then we've, we've basically given up on the whole project. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's become harder and harder, right, as the year, as in the last few years. And, and for both sides, not just with the gun debate, but, you know, in the U.S., um, context overall. Uh, you mentioned, you know, roughly third or thirty percent is is the statistic I found on Pew Research Center um, that they own a gun. But I think in rural areas that jumps even more. So we're in Western Colorado, pretty rural area, and uh, I've heard estimates of uh, forty to maybe as high as fifty percent. So I think in our area, everything you just said is even more pronounced. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just to kind of drop this, there's a there's a new study. So so one of the debates that social scientists often have are about you know measures and surveys and data and methodology, and um, you know like how do you actually measure something like something that should be uh, easily measured like you know how many guns are in circulation, how what percentage of people in the U.S. own a gun, and there is um, actually this new study that just came out that is actually suggesting that it is dramatically undercounting that 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 is a dramatic undercount um, because there's a you know social desirability bias there's a you know you know not wanting to disclose that kind of information to you know to someone you don't know in a survey and so um, yeah it's really not clear so I would really see that 30 percent as like the bottom floor and definitely in in rural spaces um, it's it's much much higher well and so um well, let me just take a pause. We are almost at the bottom of the hour, so it's 4.29, and you're listening to Meet in the Middle show on KDNK Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guest is Jennifer Carlson. And today's show is Guns in America, Armed or Dangerous. So we've, we were just talking about gun rights, but uh, but prior to that I was talking about the different issues that are involved, and I think gun violence is, a, is another huge topic that fits in there. And, and you mentioned... That some will, some would argue that, uh, and I definitely hear that that um, uh, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, and sometimes violence is necessary for um, protection. Um, your thoughts on? Uh, we'll just start with um, um, so, sort of the the protection aspect of gun violence and and um, the merits of that argument or or lack thereof. Um. Yeah, that's a really big, um, <laughs> that's a big, big topic. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that this, yeah, this is something that's said over and over. The only thing that can stop a, you know, a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Um, you know, and obviously that, a, that, that is, a, you know, it's a, it's a gun rights argument. Um, you know, it's, it's when you step back from that, that you, you know, and, and you kind of let that, very, you know, that there's so many assumptions baked into that, right? Um, that, well, that the good guy knows how to operate their gun, but well, that they're both guys, that's interesting. Um, that it's very clear who the bad guy is. Um, and it's, um, you know, and that the bad guy made this choice. And, you know, the good guy is, is simply in this circumstance where they have to react. Um, there's all these ways in which that really, I think, communicates an understanding of like crime and how crime happens and what the conditions of crime happening are um, that really make it impossible to look beyond the gun, right? So, you know, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where, you know, it's not so much that people owning and carrying guns for, um, you know, for self-defense, which, by the way, is the number one reason why people own and carry guns today, 
um, it's that it becomes the only point of conversation. So, you know, we when we say the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, we don't talk about, you know, all the types of gun policies that gun control advocates are going to want to talk about. Um, we don't talk about how, so, you know, in other words, that would be like, how did the bad guy get his gun? Um, but we also don't talk about all the, 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 the massive amount of social, economic, community, family breakdown um, that, that put that person in that situation of becoming a bad guy, right? Um, and also we just assume that maybe there's just bad people and, and violence is inevitable. And we know that that's not true because we can see gun violence rise and fall. We can see other geopolitical contexts where gun violence is much, much higher than what we have, um, just look south of the border, but then also um, is much, much lower. So, you know, when I hear that, I think that the tendency is to, like, enter into this, like, technocratic debate about, you know, how many defensive gun uses are there every year. I mean, we know we can look at the FBI stats on how many justifiable homicides there are, which is the, um, you know, that's the term for self-defense uh, homicides. Um, and, and we can we can have that argument and, and you know, fine. But I think that even that argument is still playing into this, like, very narrow understanding of how we can how we can address this issue. Um, and, you know, if I can just kind of go off from this, um, you know, when we start opening it up beyond just like the immediacy of guns themselves, we can st suddenly start thinking about solutions that empower communities, empower individuals, and don't even involve, other than the earmarking of funding, don't even involve, um, you know, ad addressing, like, specific gun policies, let alone addressing, you know, the Second Amendment or something like that. And, you know, the really, um, one of the, the examples of this I always go to are um, con community violence intervention initiatives. And so these are, I talked about this at Aspen, these are groups that are, you know, they're often people who have some, um, I'll say, expertise in, in, in violence and how violence unfolds and how, you know, situations can be conducive to violence erupting. So this isn't even like, you know, socioeconomic. This is just like, you know, when you have this set of situ situations, this, you know, interactional dynamic, you know, people are arguing out on the street, um, you know, a, a violence interrupter may say, hey, I'm going to intervene in that and just try and cool things down. I'm going to try and de-escalate. Um, and when I say that, you know, they often have, um, you know, some kind of expertise, these, these may be people who are um, formerly, were formerly uh, gang affiliated. Um, so it's actually taking what would be, you know, something that would actually bar them um, because we know the mark of a criminal record, how that impacts people's housing, employment, all these things. It actually takes something that would be a negative and actually not only transforms it into a positive for them because they can contribute in this really incredible way, but also positive for their community because they are actually, um, you know, addressing gun violence at the street level. Now, I think there's been some um, really encouraging um, analyses on the effectiveness of these programs. They are being rolled out across the U.S. There are some analyses that are also coming out that are suggesting that um, not all of these programs implemented in different ways are going to be as effective. So I think that's a big question of how do we make these effective programs. But that's an example of like, you know, there's no, I mean, some of these, some of these groups actually not only are not like, you know, law enforcement, they're not even, they, they actually explicitly say we don't deal with law enforcement because that's how we maintain our credibility. We're credible messengers to, you know, to people that aren't going to talk to us if, 
you know, if law enforcement, if they know we're going to talk to law enforcement, but will talk to us and will give us the opportunity to, you know, de-escalate violence, um, you know, if, if we don't. So, um, so I think that's actually a really uh, encouraging example and also an example of the kind of thing that I think we need to be thinking of, but it's hard to think of if all we do is remain fixated on this, like, bad guy with a gun, good guy with a gun. And the last thing I'll say on that, too, is, um, you know, we all I think that, that that framework also suggests that, like, you know, the good guys with the gun are, you know, always going to be they're always going to be there and, and able to react heroically. And I do not want to say that that hasn't happened. Um, we I mean, there are examples of mass shootings that have been um, cut short because someone who was non-law enforcement or off duty um, intervened with a firearm. So, you know, it's, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. At the same time, though, we all saw what happened in Uvalde. We all saw that the police who are not just trained, but paid to protect lives with lethal, lethal force, if necessary, um, failed to do so. And so I think that in some ways that, um, you know, that bad guy with a gun, good guy with a gun thing can also give us a false sense of complacency. So there's, there's, there's problematic aspects of that. I'll put it that way. Definitely. And it's interesting, you, you said you saw that as a gun rights issue, and I saw it as um, sort of the precursor of, not maybe not precursor, but um, it, it's part of the gun violence debate, too, because as you said, a lot of people own guns for their own uh, protection and believe that they're, um, they're doing what's best by uh, using that gun on others, and, and hence we have gun violence. Um, yeah, and, and I... I should also say, just jumping into that, you know, I think that there's a tendency, and you see this with the debate itself, but you also see it with academics and scholars who study study this, and then you definitely see it in the, you know, the policy and the advocacy world, is that the, there are many, um, like, pockets that get kind of cordoned off. So, like, gun rights is over here and gun violence is over there. Uh, public Violence perpetrated by public law enforcement is over here. Uh, other kinds of gun violence is over there. And so, you know, I think it's actually, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think it is problematic because, you know, it suggests that, um, you know, people who are invested in gun rights don't care about gun violence. It suggests that people who are survivors of gun violence don't end up buying a gun because that might be the only thing that they feel can make them feel safe at night, um, which I've interviewed survivors, definitely, um, you know, not the bulk of survivors I've interviewed, but I have definitely interviewed survivors who, you know, may even be very apprehensive about bringing a firearm into their home after ex- being touched by gun violence. And yet they're like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't trust the criminal justice system to keep, um, you know, to, to keep me safe. And so I think you're really right to, really question like what how do these terms even matter and they matter because they're kind of yeah the the contrived part of the debate that we talk about at a national level but when we get to that you know very fine grain what's happening on the ground a lot of those things break down definitely um with respect to gun violence you know there's a million statistics out there and and most of us hear about the mass shootings um most of the time I found from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation that there are 22 times as many gun-related homicides in the United States as in the countries of the European Union. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, because to me that 
that benchmarking is really important. Uh, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious to a lot of people, but I think we own more guns per capita than a lot of countries. And so is it just to be expected that there's more homicides? Or what do you think is behind, um, and do you agree with those statistics, uh, gun violence is so high compared to Europe, for example? Yeah, I, I think that it's really interesting how our, when I say our, the, the United States, the American um, position vis-a-vis other countries with gun violence, how that gets played out in the in the gun debate. Um, and, and you're totally right. Uh, it's often discussed in terms of, you know, look at these other countries that have, um, you know, very uh, stringent regulations on, um, you know, accessing guns, using guns, um, you know, even in a place like Switzerland where, um you know, there are definitely more guns than in, in other spaces in Europe. Um, you know, there's there's definitely um, a, a very different uh, relationship with gun regulation and a different relationship with guns as personal versus collective defense, which I think is really, um, really interesting. And mm-hmm. there's a lot that more that needs to be unpacked with that that um, I don't I don't think has adequately been done. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, like to say that the the, the rates are different. Um, they're absolutely different. Um, that's that's true. Um, but it's also not the case that the U.S. Um, is the highest globally in terms of gun violence. Um, that's not the case. I highly recommend um uh, a book uh, by uh, Ian Grillo, which um, is on the um, he he recently just uh, released it and then released the paperback version. It's on um, uh, gun violence and and gun trafficking and particularly focusing on um, gun violence in Mexico and its relationship to the um, gun trafficking um, from the U.S. And you know one of the things that he he talks about is like yeah this this is the case that you know Americans are often comparing themselves to you know the UK Australia Canada um, but you know actually U.S. cities um, and and also it's not the case that gun violence is is um, you know monolithic across the U.S. There's pockets um, and no Chicago is actually not one of the number one it's not the number one city in terms of gun violence um, even though that somehow Chicago has become this, like, you know, like this, this, um, yeah, this, this word for that seems interchangeable for with, with high gun violence rates. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, um, it's important to remember that actually, like, you know, if we look at Latin America, if we look beyond Europe, um, we see, we see, um, you know, comparable or higher rates of, of gun violence um, in, in different places. And so, you know, what do we make of that? I think that, you know, there is, I mean, the reason that 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 comparison between U.S. Uh, the U.S. and Europe happens so much is because the implication is like, look, if we just did those things, if we just passed those laws that they have, then we would be able to to drop our gun our, our rates of gun crime. And you know, I I think that my approach to that is like, look, this isn't about um, passing a law. Um, you know, this isn't about passing um, a regulation that's somehow going to, to you know, w- we have a lot more to do mm-hmm. to become like, um, you know, the UK, for example, or like Canada, for example, um, than simply pass, um, you know, a bundle of gun laws. And you can see that in terms of the criminal justice system, the immigration system, in terms of um, inequality, in terms of the healthcare system, in terms of the, you know, and we can look at the opioid crisis, we can look at so many different indicators, gun violence is part of that, that completely distinguish us from those societies. Um, we can also look at the fact that, you know, during COVID, everybody was 
freak out about what this what this meant. It's a global pandemic. Um, we were all globally touched by a profound sense of insecurity and uncertainty. And you did not see um, people in the UK or in Canada, you know, surging, uh, you know, going going to buy guns. Um, you saw that in the U.S., and you actually also saw it in Brazil. And so, you know, what's similar about the U.S. and Brazil versus uh, the U.S. and Canada or the U.S. and the U.K.? That's the question I think we should be asking um, if we are going to understand not just um, the fact that those rates are different, but, like, what is the deeper sociological terrain that is making gun violence so different? Um, and, yes, the availability of guns is part of, of what's going on. I, I don't want to say that that's not the case, um, but it is not um, – it, it, I would say that it's a symptom more than it is um, a root cause. So is that what you were uh, alluding to earlier when you said we don't have the same safety nets as the countries were compared Absolutely. to? So you're saying those safety nets are critical to uh, – I assume when you say be like them, you mean reducing gun violence – Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So those safety nets, and we'll get to um, you, you know some of your recommendations in the, the end of the show. But sounds like those safety nets are um, the first step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think there's also yeah. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk about it at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe we might migrate a little bit into to mental health. And I certainly didn't recognize or understand until I started doing more research that approximately uh, half of the gun deaths in the United States is from suicide. Uh, and that's, um, that's huge. Uh, and it's, it's maybe not a completely different topic, but it's, it's definitely different than um, uh, the pure gun rights debate, um, for to say. And the question that um, uh, I've had uh, a debate question I've had with others is, you know, that guns don't kill people, people kill people. And I wondered what your response to that is. Um, yeah. 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 So, um, Bill Cook and Kristen Goss are, uh, two Duke scholars who have spent a lot of time, um, unpacking gun politics and gun policy and gun violence from, all sorts of different angles, and um, they have uh, they have a book called, I believe, "What Everybody Should Know About Guns" or "What Everybody Needs to Know About Guns." One of one of those books, and one of the one of the things that they say, you know, they kind of really systematically review the evidence. Highly recommend that book if if anybody just wants to get like inundated with the statistics and the data. And basically, what they say is, look, guns don't kill people; people kill people. But guns make it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how they, they square the circle on that. And one of the um, sort of terms that uh, sociologists and criminologists uh, use to make sense of this is what's been called the, the instrumentality effect. So, you know, the instrument of violence or the, the instrument of lethal force matters above and beyond, um, you know, the intentions, other, you know, beyond choosing that. Uh, above and beyond the, the assailant. And so, you know, we can see this in terms of, you know, the likelihood of surviving low-caliber versus high-caliber firearms. Um, we can see this um, in terms of how um, suicides track um, gun availability, but not of it, not other availability of other kinds of um, means of suicide. Um, you know, obviously, gun, people who are, um, you know, gun rights advocates understand this at some level, which is why they argue about what's the best caliber, um, you know, we can see this in terms of 
um, you know, the the likelihood or sort of how um, that that thins in line between a, you know, an armed assault. Um, when does an armed assault become a homicide? When does it not become a homicide? That may have less to do with, you know, the premeditated intentions of the assailant and more to do with the weapon choice and um, that that how that dynamic unfolds. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, so absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, going to suicide, what we see is, um, you know, when we we look at like and, and this is the terminology completed suicide by by different means. Actually, um, I believe that the attempts, and I should, this, this may be a, a couple years out of date, so it's possible this is slightly out of date, but I believe this is still true, um, that actually it's um, poisoning. So drug overdoses, um, that kind of um, attempted suicide is actually the, the most common. It's more common than guns. But guns end up playing a much bigger role because gun suicides are so much more likely to be uh, to be completed. Um, it's much, much less likely for a gun suicide to not be completed than um, an overdose, right? And so that is where, um, you know, thinking about the instrumentality effect, that, that guns actually um, pl- play the significant role. And so, you know, the argument is that if a gun is available, most, um, you know, many suicide attempts are, are th- the decision to do that is made very quickly. Um, and that, you know, guns are, gun, gun suicide is irreversible um, and definitive and, and happens very fast in a way that, um, you know, other means are not. Yeah, I think to me that's one of the strongest uh, reasons to consider the, the gun rights debate. Um, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to your point, it's kind of uh, um, uh, it's kind of a moot point because um, that, or maybe it's that the argument hasn't been informed well enough to ask that question to say, well, I know everybody supports gun rights in the United States, but do you know that uh, access to guns uh, is what mm-hmm. makes um, suicide so much more successful than, say, drug overdose and yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's also, I mean, it kind of also goes back to this, um, you know, this question of of community and solidarity and our ties to one another and how, um, you know, both the appeal of guns, but also the possibility for gun um, gun violence is connected to that. And if you actually look at, you know, who is, um, who is most at risk for gun suicide, um, it's, you know, it's middle-aged white men living in rural areas. And you've, you're, you and your listeners have probably heard of this concept of, of deaths of despair, um, whether it's opioid overdoses, gun suicides, or um, alcoholism, a death from alcoholism. And, you know, we see that there is, um, you know, there is a, a very particular demographic that's impacted, and it actually tends to be um, people who tend to own guns, right? And so I think with that, you know, part of it, I actually don't know. I mean, part of it is like, yes, we need to be talking about this. We need to be, um, this needs to be something that is um, part of the public discourse because I think we don't talk about it because it's stigmatized. And, you know, being more comfortable with having this conversation is just so important. But I also think that we need to be, so, you know, great, like have the, have people be aware that like actually, you know, Historically, gun, gun suicides have been the, the biggest chunk of gun deaths. Um, it's not been homicides. It's not been mass shootings. That always um, or often surprises people when they hear that. 
I think the other piece, though, is really working on figuring out how to give people tools to um, to deal with, uh, not just to say, like, oh, well, let's take away guns, but, like, no, like, to deal with suicidality, to improve right. um, mental health services, particularly in underserved rural areas. I mean, we have a crisis right now in terms of access to, to mental health care, and it's, it's, I mean, I encourage your viewers to, or your listeners, sorry, to... to um, yeah, to, to check those, to check out that data and check out what that terrain actually looks like because it is appalling. And if anything, it's, 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 I mean, in a way, it's shocking that there isn't even more, but I mean, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, but I think that, you know, one thing that I found really encouraging is, um, initiatives like, um, Hold My Guns, initiatives like, uh, the Gunshot Project. And these are initiatives that actually bring, um, firearms trainers, uh, gun sellers into the fold and um, in different ways to get them, um, you know, comfortable with, you know, talking about and understanding, um, you know, suicide, the signs of suicide. Um, the Gunshot Project actually trains um, gun store owners and, um, and, and gun range owners and trainers to look for the signs of suicide, not to be like, oh, I'm not going to sell guns and like, oh, we're going to have this like oppressive apparatus or I'm going to report you or something like that, but to actually learn to engage with, you know, potential buyers and say like, you know, I, when I, I, I've talked to, um, you know, some of the, some of the um, trainers in this, in this program and, you know, even just saying something like, do you really want to buy that gun right now? Just hmm. like, let's pause right. and just think about what's going on. That's actually, that's actually, I mean, in their view, like actually had an impact on people saying, Hey, maybe, maybe I don't need this. Hold my guns um, is a group that, or an initiative that is actually aimed at um, uh, enlisting gun shops to hold guns for people who, um, for whatever reason, don't want them in their homes. So let's say that you have a teenager who is battling depression. You're worried that they're, you know, maybe exhibiting signs of suicidality. You just want the gun. It's not law enforcement. It's not a permanent seizure. It's not a temporary seizure by law enforcement. You are simply contacting your local gun shop and say, hey, can you hold this? Because, you know, I while we're dealing with this in my family, I, I don't want anything to possibly go wrong. And so I think that, you know, that ability to have that kind of um, – opportunity to have that kind of conversation that is very powerful i think well that is i'd love to hear that um i want to research that more so we actually only have about three minutes left um before we have to wind down and i wanted to ask the the final question um so how do we preserve the intent of the second amendment to um to bear arms uh, while reducing gun violence what's what, what do you think is the path and sorry to cut, cut it short but in three minutes or less yeah, absolutely. Um, I can probably be really fast. Um, I think that initiatives like community um, violence intervention um, and violence interruption groups are incredibly powerful. I would say that's um, number one. Number two is the kinds of initiatives that I have just um, described in terms of getting, um, you know, getting an awareness and getting tools for, for people who are, you know, dealing with uh, mental health crises to to be able to address that and, and, you know, turn to their local gun shop and say, hey, can you, you know, can you help me work through this? Um, like initiatives like Hold My Guns, I think that's um, super, super powerful. Um, and, and I think those are powerful because they're not just telling people what they can and can't do. That's not what those initiatives are about. They're about building a different kind of civic capacity, building a different way for people to 
talk to each other to have difficult conversations, whether it's about, you know, de-escalating gun violence or addressing suicidality. Um, it's about allowing us to, you know, bind ourselves to one another um, and rebuild those social ties. And I just think that's super powerful. I would say for number three, um, which is something that I haven't addressed yet, um, is actually a turn toward gun violence survivors. Um, I think that in this country, we, um, you know, especially if it's a mass shooting, we will have headlines that, you know, that with all the details and it will saturate the news for um, what is feeling, as has been feeling like a shorter and shorter news cycle. And then it'll just be forgotten. It'll be left out of the news. It will be, I, I mean, you know, the, the assumption will be just move on to the next crisis. And, you know, that might work for the American public at large, but it is absolutely not the case that that's the way that gun violence is experienced. Um, this is something that impacts not just people's, um, you know, physical lives and, you know, it, it impacts their psychological lives, their financial lives, their social lives. Um, their housing, their employment. Um, I mean, it is. It has such profound ramifications that things like victim compensation is is not going to address. Um, and so I think you know having some recognition that even if we instantly you know ended gun violence today or tomorrow, um, we are still a society of gun violence survivors who need our you know that and and we should be building and th- thinking about building how to build. Um, the kinds of nets, the kinds of supports that um, that that can that can help people move through this. Uh, you never get over it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that you know, shifting. We, we talk a lot about prevention. We talk a lot about um, you know policies that prevent. Um, I would like to see more of a conversation about okay, what do we do with the fact that we are um, you know in many ways, and I want to be clear, like we are. This is very different across different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. This is not gun violence is not experienced equally across um, you know the population of people in the U.S. Um, but we are you know collectively, even if an unevenly, um, a traumatized society by gun violence. And so you know being able to, to wrestle with that and it would be a powerful step. Thank you, Jennifer Carlson, for joining me today on Meet in the Middle: Guns in America, Armed or Dangerous. I so appreciate your efforts and your willingness to discuss the issue. KDNK listeners, thanks for joining us. Have a great night. Thank you so much for having me.